Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. According to the National Association of Home Builders, the average size, average square footage of a home, brand new home built in the 1950s was 982 square feet. By the 1970s, that number had increased to 1,500 square feet. And by 2006, the average size square footage of a new home built in the United States was 2,400, over 2,400 square feet. And at that very same time, the size of the average American family was shrinking. We went from, in the 50s, the average size of a family was 3.35 people. Don't ask me how they came up with a 0.35 of a person, but the average size, that's what it was, according to the U.S. Census. By, the, by 2006, that had changed to 2.6 persons, which means that we got more and more space for less and less people. In the 1950s, in a home, the average American home, there was 292 square feet per person. By 2006, it was over 900 square feet per person. And we had less people and more space. And what did we do with all that space? We filled it up. We filled it up with stuff. That we filled it up so much with stuff that UCLA did a study not too long ago, discovered that only 25% of the garages in the United States have room for a car. Three quarters of American garages can't fit the car they were designed for because they're filled with stuff, which gave rise to a whole new industry called the self-storage industry, where we rent garages, not for our cars, for our stuff. The, the self-storage industry, they actually keep stats on this. Just, just take a wild guess. How much square footage do you believe in the United States is devoted to self-storage? Just take a wild guess. Turn to the person next to you. Just tell them what you think. How much square footage in the United States is devoted to self-storage of stuff? Just take a wild guess. The answer is 2.35 billion with a B square feet. In the United States, just to store stuff. Now, if you have no idea what that is, that is about 84.3 square miles. And if you have no idea how big that is, the city of San Francisco is about 46.9 square miles. So it's almost twice the size of the city of San Francisco just to store stuff. That's, yeah. (laughs) Shut up. That's That's a good reply. I've been reading this book. Uh, Pastor Larry turned me on to this book. It's called More or Less. It's written by a guy named Jeff Schinnebogger. And um, we've actually ordered copies. I highly recommend you get this book. It's not a guilt trip thing. It's just a really good, practical, thoughtful, somewhat challenging way to start thinking differently about our stuff. But one of the things that Schinnebogger writes in his book, more or less, he says, we have this uncanny ability to accumulate things that are not essential to living, yet lack the practice of releasing the acquired junk when it no longer serves a purpose. In other words, we're really good at accumulating stuff. We just have a hard time letting go. 
What would happen if we moved from this push and pull and drive towards more and decided to reverse the direction and instead choose less? And the book Schoenbarger writes is just talking about discovering each one of us. And we'll talk a little bit more about this next week when we talk about enough. But just finding a line that says, this is enough. This is enough. And then whatever is above that, find a way to use it to help somebody else. What if we did that? See, we live in a culture that is consumed with more. Bigger is always better. And, and we got to have more and more and more of it. And Pastor Larry spoke about this so well last week, talking about this drive and this pull of more that it has on our life and how it never really satisfies that no matter how much we get, we just want a little bit more. Today, I want to investigate the power of less with you. Because I truly believe that most people, most of us, want to be generous. We just don't know how. We don't think enough about it. It is down inside of us something that we want to do. We just got to learn how to do it. And I truly believe the best version of myself, the best version of yourself is when we are generous. Because I think we serve a generous God and it's part of how he created us. He put this, it's, a, it's the God part inside of all of us that wants to be generous because it's, it's what we were designed to do. We just live in a culture that pulls us towards more and it just plays on our own desire for more. And one of the things that you find in the early church, the first century church, was this incredible spirit of generosity, that the power of God was so prevalent in that community, that faith community, that they actually became more generous. There's a couple of summary statements in the book of Acts. If you want to turn there, we're going to start in Acts chapter 2. Let me read this to you. Acts chapter 2, it's a summary statement. The birth of the church, this first community of believers, verse 42 says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, that wasn't just a flash-in-the-pan, one-shot deal. Because if you turn over a couple of pages in your Bible to Acts chapter 4, it's another one of those summary statements. kind of expounds on it a little bit more because this, this continued to happen. Verse 32, it says that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, with whom, that, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned. And he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. I think it is no accident that these summary statements about the early church include the spirit of generosity. 
I don't think it's an accident that it's in there. In fact, it's repeated twice. It's repeated often throughout the whole New Testament. That God so got a hold of this community of faith that it so transformed them that they decided to make a change in the direction from the pursuit of more to the pursuit of less. And they discovered something incredibly powerful that we can discover too. And so this morning, I want to talk about the power of less. Not to lay guilt trips on us, but just to help us start thinking a little bit differently about what we have, what we earn, and what we could do with it. Because some incredibly powerful things happen when you choose less. When you choose less, when you decide to do less for yourself, it allows us to do more for other people. That's a pretty obvious statement. But it means we got to make that decision. It says they sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need. Here's the question. How do they know that they had need? Because they lived in community. They were connected with each other. They were engaged with each other's life. See, I think one of the reasons that we, don't, that we aren't more generous, one of the things that fights against the spirit of generosity is our isolation, our shelteredness. If we're not engaged with or in contact with people in need, it's very easy to not think about them. They're out of sight, out of mind. But these people were so connected with each other and so so involved in each other's lives and so caring about one another, they were connected. There was a sense of community there. And it fostered this sense of generosity, spirit of generosity. I'll give you a personal example. About 10 years ago, I think it was, Tom Agam, uh, president of Hope for Kids, um, had visited with us. Um, he's coming again this year. But he came just from a first trip to Uganda and just seen the need, the incredible need for orphans um, from the AIDS epidemic in Uganda. And, and he came with like 300, a binder of 300 pages of kids who just needed sponsorship. They had lost their father, in some cases both parents, and were living with an aunt or an uncle and had no one to care for them. And all it cost was $30 a month. And Betty and I talked about it. He said, you know, we can do that. $30, that's nothing. We can fit that into our budget. And so we did. We chose to sponsor a child 10 years ago. Name is Wandera Patrick. And all Wandera Patrick was to us was a picture on a piece of paper with a number and a check that we wrote every month until I took my first trip to Uganda and I met Wandera Patrick. And all of a sudden, he wasn't a statistic he wasn't a check that was written in our budget. He was a person. <laughs> and now it seems like every time I make a trip to Uganda, I come back sponsoring another kid. <laughs> but the reason for that is, is because you get beyond the statistics. It, it, it becomes personal. And I think relationships are key to that spirit of generosity. Let me ask you this morning. When you hang out with people, do most of the people that you hang out with, are they people who have more than you? about the same as you or less than you. Because if the bulk of our relationships are people who have about as much as we do or more than we do, then it feeds this drive to more. Because when I look at somebody who has more, it makes me feel like I have less and I've got to have more. When I turn around and I'm engaged in relationships and, and, and really meaningful relationships with people who have less than me, it changes my whole perspective. And I think relationships are one of the keys to that spirit of generosity that we really have to be connected with other people. Schoenbarger writes this. He says, when we picture a person's face and say his or her name, we're connected to that person in a way that causes change. We will feel compelled to help, not out of guilt, but out of relationship. Statistics and numbers may challenge your mind, but faces 
will soften your heart. That faith community, those early first century believers, made a decision to move from the pursuit of more to the pursuit of less. And that's what has to happen. You need to kind of pre-decide this because it doesn't happen naturally. It is not our default setting. Our default setting, our default setting is selfishness. And the early church says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that, every, they shared everything that they had. There was not this sense of, I own this. It's mine for myself. So much so that it says there were no needy persons among them. That is a mind-boggling statement to me. It's because they pre-decided to choose less instead of more. We have a grandson who's about to turn two. Do you know what the favorite word of a two-year-old is? Mine. It's right up there with no. (laughs) But mine. Mine. See, that is our default setting. It's mine. And we, you know, it was your, you know it because it was your favorite word when you were two years old. The thing is, you grew up, you matured, you got a little bit older, you got a little bit more sophisticated, so you don't say that word out loud anymore. (laughs) But every time you make a purchase, there's this voice deep down inside you that says, it's mine. It's mine. (laughs) Something needs to change. Something needed to change. The truth of the matter is that most of us have extra. Most of, not everybody in this room, but most of us in this room have extra. We have extra time. We have extra resources. We have extra food. We have extra clothes. We have extra money. Because extra is anything above and beyond what you need. Take out your outline, your note paper there. And I'd like you to do is draw a line, Shinnebogger has to go through this exercise in the book. Draw a line. In fact, you might want to draw four or five of them. And on the far left side of your line, put a minus sign. And on the far right-hand side of that line, put a plus sign. And you might put a couple of these lines. One of them might be labeled time. One of them might be labeled money. One might be labeled clothing. One might be labeled food. Okay? But just... This is something you can take home. This is your homework, Okay? But just go home, draw those lines, the minus and the plus, and then on that line, put a check or an X about where you think, honestly, you are when it comes to that resource. When it comes to your money, honestly, when it comes to, enough would be right in the middle. So if you got a little bit more than enough, then put the X a little bit to the right. Maybe you got way more than enough. But put an X wherever you think you are when it comes to your money, your time, your clothing, your food, whatever it might be. Okay, And then next to that X, make a decision on the direction you would like to move and put an arrow pointing that direction. It makes you think differently about what you have because the truth is most of us have extra. I'll tell you one of my extras, T-shirts. I have a t-shirt. I have two full drawers dedicated to my t-shirts. They are so, and I don't, I won't, I don't iron them, but I take them warm out of the dryer, spread them out flat, and make sure when I take them out, they have no wrinkles, okay? I am anal about my t-shirts. I have more t-shirts in those two drawers than I ever need. And in fact, I have more than what's in the drawer. They're just hidden, because my wife will get on my case if I don't, but Truthfully, many of those t-shirts I have not worn in over a year. 
I have extra. So this is my project this week. See, this is the idea. Just, just this, Your extra is anything that you could give away today and not have it impact you tomorrow in one way, shape, or form. And all of us have that. So just one of your extras, this would be your homework, is just to say, you know what? I have extra T-shirts. I have extra whatever. And go through your extra, clean it out. We've got a drop-off box here at the entrance to the, uh, the top of our driveway for Salvation Army. Bring it in and just dump off your extra, especially if it's in good shape. My T-shirts, some of them are in like brand new almost. I take good care of them. But I don't need that many. See, it's just a very simple way. When you choose to do with less for yourself, it allows you to do more for other people. So draw the line somewhere. Here's something else that happens. Choosing less, it's vital to the transformation of your soul. It changes your heart. Changes your soul. This is something I had never noticed before. I told you I was astounded by that. I've always been astounded by that. There were no needy persons among me. What I didn't catch ever before that just stood out to me this week as I was studying this is, this is, look at the context of it. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. That's what I'd never noticed before. Why were there no needy persons among them? Because God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. In other words, they took a first step to decide to do with less so that others could have more. And that step of faith caused something to change in their hearts that the Holy Spirit, God got a hold of their hearts. It opened the door to greater and greater generosity. They took the first, and that's the way it always works with faith. You take that first step and you decide to do something. And what happens is God takes that first step that you take and he begins to use that as an opening in your life to bring about change in your heart and in your soul. And when you take that step towards generosity, what happens is God works in your life. And you find that you grow in trust, in humility, in compassion, in kindness. Because God does something with it. That's what we've experienced here. A little less than two years ago, um, Pastor Larry came up with this incredible idea of the dollar club. I'm not sure. I think he, I don't know if it was original with him or what, but he came up with this. What if we just took a head count every Sunday, asked everybody who was here to just put an extra dollar in the, dollar in the offering boxes, um, and we would just take that to be able to bless families in, in our community, families in need. Because you can't do a whole lot with, you know, 5 or $10, but 600 650 700 750 that, that, that's a, a sizable job. That could help pay somebody's rent, a good portion of their rent. That could buy a car. And so we made that decision, we made that commitment, and we just took that first step of faith. We weren't sure if anybody was going to participate in this, and we were already on a tight budget, but we just decided to do it. And it has changed the culture of our church. And in a little less than two years, we have helped 115 families to the tune of over $55,000. Is that cool? Is that cool? For one dollar. What can you do with a dollar? You can't do any, You can't even get a cup of coffee for a dollar. But when we all pool our dollars together, you can significantly impact somebody else's life who is in need. The, the Thanksgiving boxes that are up here. Uh, our, our men's ministry last, started this a couple years ago. 
This year, our men's ministry decided we wanted to set a goal of 150 Thanksgiving dinners that we were going to send out for families in need. And that was our goal. And so we put together these 150 boxes and put them out there for people to pick up last week, take them home, do your shopping, bring it back here. You know what happened? We ran out of boxes. We ran out of boxes, so we had to just give people the list of ingredients. you got to get your own box, too. And that's why some of these don't look like they fit with everybody else. It's because it unleashes a spirit of generosity when you take that first step. We've discovered it in our own lives individually. We've discovered it as a church. And my prayer for us is that we would grow in this so that there would be no needy persons among us. That would be an incredible statement. Changes your perspective. And that's why Jesus spoke so much about the topic of materialism and money. Because it's so close to our hearts. And he wants our hearts. One individual was so transformed, they actually gave him a nickname. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. What he did was, now, by the way, if you don't know your Old Testament, here's a good reason to read your Old Testament because it makes a whole lot more sense when you get to the New Testament. In the, in, when the nation of Israel, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt and moved into the land of promise, every tribe of the 12 tribes was given a section of land. And, and that was going to be their, their, their descendants' land forever on, Okay. The only tribe that was not given any land was the Levites. The Levites were to be the priestly tribe. They were to serve in the temple. They were not to hold land on their own. They were to be the the leaders of worship and, and, and pointing people to God and to be dispersed throughout the land. They didn't get any property of their own. So when it says that Joseph, a Levite, had property, there was something very unique about that. Now, it says he owned property from Cyprus which maybe he didn't like living in Israel and not having a house of his own, and that's why he moved to Cyprus. We don't know the backstory, okay? What we do know is something so changed in him that that property he owned in Cyprus, he sold. He brought the proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet, and he said, I let go of this. This isn't mine anymore. Giving it up to you. you. You guys do with it however you can distribute it to help somebody in need. And he was so... So transformed and people, and I, this is just the KJV, the Ken Jensen version. I think the reason he's mentioned is because I think he was the catalyst in all of this. I think he was the catalyst. People saw something. And, and he was so transformed that they looked at him and said, this is no ordinary Joe. <laughs> we got to give him a nickname. Encourager. Barnabas, son of encouragement. See, that's what happens transforms your heart, transforms your soul. So take some baby steps. Here's what I'd like you to do. What can you do with your extra? For me, one of them is my T-shirts. I'm starting to think about other ways that I can do it. But what could you do with your extra? You've got extra time. You say, no, I don't have any time. I'm so busy. I, I, got, I don't have time for anything. Yes, you do. You have more free time than most people in this world. Most of us in this room get at least three, four, some of us even five weeks during the year in which we are paid not to work. (laughs) That is unheard of in a good portion of our world. That is certainly unheard of in Jesus' time, but that is something you've got extra time. Maybe you would take 
one of those weeks or two of those weeks and go on a short-term mission trip. Or maybe go and build houses, be a part of a volunteer organization, or do something else with it. Okay? Just think creatively about what do you have extra and how could you use it to help someone else. And here's the last thing. Choosing less reminds us, and for this I'm grateful to John Ortberg. I love the way he put it. Choosing less reminds us that the best stuff in life isn't stuff. The best stuff in life is not stuff. See, their generosity contributed to this sense of community. That's what happened. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. In other words, the people outside the church looked at this group of early believers and they say, I'm not sure about their doctrine. I'm not sure what they believe. I'm not too crazy about the songs they sing, but I sure am glad they're in our community. The people on the outside looking in said, wow, there is something different about that group of people. Talking about changing the way people view the church. You see, nobody's really interested in our doctrine although doctrine is very, very important. And most people out in our community don't know the songs that we sing, although I like the songs that we sing. (laughs) And most people won't necessarily come in and hear somebody preach at them for about 30 minutes. But when the church is generous and giving and choosing less instead of more, people pay attention. And you know what? That is the essence of the gospel. See, when we move towards generosity, when we move away from more and towards less so that we can use the extra to help others, when we do that, we are in a very tangible way acting out the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love it, the way um, Paul put this. He said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, So that through his poverty, you might become rich. See, that's the gospel. That God gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Who came and lived on this earth as a human being. And then gave his life completely for us on a cross. So that we spiritually impoverished, bankrupt, needy, could be made rich by His grace. And every time that we act that out, we are acting out the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the power of His grace to change a life. See, that's the gospel. We could do nothing for ourselves. Christ came and did it for us so that we could be forgiven, reconciled, restored, given a new life. And we can become the messengers of that reality to our own community in our day so that people who might be on the outside looking in would say, I'm not sure about their doctrine, I don't know any of the songs they sing, and I don't know if I want to sit and listen to a guy talk for half an hour, but there's something going on there, and I'm glad they're in our community. Amen?
Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.